0: Last Sunday, we uh, looked at how we are to... I'm really echoing, aren't I? Okay, I thought maybe it was just my ears, but I think I'm echoing here. Okay, that took care of the echo. (laughs) Last Sunday, we looked at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and Solomon's conclusion that we are to respect authority in our world government home family the authority structures of our world we are to respect authority but here's the question we all face when we struggle when when, when we deal with this issue of respect for authority what happens when the authorities that we are to respect abuse their authority what happens when evil things happen in this world? How are we to respond? What happens when those who have power abuse their power and hurt other people? How are we to respond in those kinds of situations? Well, Solomon raised that very issue as he continued in Ecclesiastes 8. And we looked at verse nine last Sunday, which concluded that little segment that we were talking about there, where he says, "All this I have seen, and applied my mind to every deed." I think I'm still echoing yeah, Nate, I um, so I, I can go to a whisper, I guess, but I'll crimp my style this morning. <laughs> All right, verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. That is, he has hurt others with the abuse of his authority in some way. So Solomon had left us with that question at the conclusion of last week. What do we do when bad things happen to us or to our friends? I mean, In another way, why bother to live the way God wants us to live, morally, righteously, in fear and honor of him, when you know, others disobey God and are successful in life and seem to get away with it? So that's the topic Solomon addresses in Ecclesiastes 8 as we continue our study. Living right seems futile when living wrong succeeds. That's a frustration. We look around us, we see people who do bad things, they get away with it, they even get ahead in life, while we who do good struggle to make it. We think, shouldn't God reward those who do good? And punish those who do evil. That should be the way it works, right? It's frustrating to watch evil succeed in this world. How do we respond? Well, Solomon gives us some principles. We're going to look at four principles this morning, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 10. And the first principle is this. Punish evil to slow the spread of evil. Verses 10 and 11. So then, Solomon writes in his autobiography here I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, that's the temple, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility, because the sentence, the verdict against an evil deed, is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Carlos Carreza tried to hire a hitman and he got caught. The killer that Carreza hired turned out to be an undercover police detective. Sadly, Carlos Carreza was only 17 years old. Sadder still, the person he wanted killed was his mother. A domestic disagreement prompted the teen to ask around for someone willing to shoot his mother and make it look like a robbery. The detective volunteered, and he was promised $2,000 for killing Carlos' mother after he received the settlement from her death. Fort Myers, Florida police arrested Carreza for solicitation to commit first-degree murder. They reported that Carreza provided everything needed to carry out the hit. He gave the undercover detective a map, a key to the apartment, and a picture of the intended victim, his mother. And then the teen added one final instruction to the supposed hitman, the detective. Carlos Carreza said he did not want anything to happen to the television. The problem of evil, and that's evil, the problem of evil is a basic issue For every philosophy of life, you've got to have an answer to the problem of evil in this world to have a reasonable philosophy of life, world-life view. A Christian philosophy of life begins with the premise that evil is real in this world, that evil exists in this world. Furthermore, a Christian philosophy of life argues that evil is not just something out there in this world, like some shadowy figure lurking around, but evil is where? Inside every human heart, all of us. We all have the capacity for evil. Therefore, Evil must be dealt with in, an, in society in order to have a society that is safe, secure, reasonably just. And Carlos Carreza plotted evil against his mother. He was caught, presumably, I don't know the end of the story, but presumably he was taken to court and paid the price for his evil plans. That's what we expect in a moral society, right? That's what Solomon expected. We expect the evildoers to pay for their crimes. But what happens when people get away with their evil? What does that do to our philosophy of life? Solomon writes that he has observed this very problem, Now remember, he's looking at life in the here and now, what you can see and observe. And he says, I have observed this problem. He talks of wicked people who live long lives and are very successful. They go in and out of the temple, so they're very religious people. They appear to be religious people. They are presumably worshiping God. They are religious, but they are very wicked, and they do much harm. He then says that these wicked people... Are given an honorable burial despite their wickedness. They are eulogized, if you will, despite their evil. They are buried with honor and they are praised in the very city where they did their evil deeds. Now, the New American Standard, which I read, translates the verb, the Hebrew word, translates it as they are forgotten. In the city, but the New International Version, if you have that this morning, translates it as "they were praised in the city where they did their evil deeds." The NIV is a bit interpretive here with the Hebrew, but uh, probably correct in the sense that that is being uh, brought out, because the Hebrew verb means to ignore or overlook something. It meant to remember information, and so it, it, excuse me. It, meant to not remember information and so lose sight of its significance, implying no proper response or an improper response in some context. That's straight out of the dictionary of biblical languages. (laughs) So, the sense is that they buried these wicked people These evil people, ignoring all of the evil that they had done, overlooking all of that evil that was done by these people. They did not respond properly to the evil that was done by these people. They buried them with honor. So, in that sense, they praised them. Qaddafi has been in power for 40 plus years, right? Doing all kinds of evil but he seems to have been very successful in life for himself. He's gotten away with evil and never been an effective and proper response to the evil that he has done. Solomon says that when we see these things, of course, now we're seeing in the paper, maybe there's some punishment coming, or there's at least a battle over it all, right? But when we see this played out in life, Solomon says, it leads to vanity. He doesn't mean pride, he means futility. It, It leads to emptiness. It renders justice meaningless when people get away with it and seem successful with the evil that they're doing, because the principle of justice, or Put another way, the principle of retribution never works out that we can see. And when we can't see the principle of retribution carried out, then life seems meaningless and futile. Why bother to do good? So Solomon then goes on in verse 11 to point out that when a sentence or a verdict for a crime is not carried out quickly, then humans he says, are actually encouraged by that to commit more crimes. Evil increases when evil is tolerated is basically what he's saying in verse 11. Today, tolerance is considered a virtue, but tolerating evil breeds more evil, not less, is what Solomon says in verse 11. When justice is not served quickly then it actually encourages more evil to take place, more crimes to be committed. And that's why. That's why we need men and women serving in law enforcement who pursue justice for crimes that are committed in this world. We need a justice system that does not tolerate crime because that's necessary to confront evil in this world. Evil is real. It happens. Everyone has the capacity for it, but people do bad things. And unless we want to end up with a meaningless world, it must be dealt with. That's true, by the way, on a global scale, too. Solomon was a king. He dealt with nations. When British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain made his famous Peace in Our Time speech justifying his appeasement of Adolf Hitler prior to World War II, he went down in history as the prime example of why appeasement doesn't work when you're facing evil. It just encourages what? More evil. That's what Solomon says. Nations who appease the evil plans of other nations only lead to more evil, not less. I mean, Hitler had to be stopped. He wasn't going to stop himself. And that is what Winston Churchill understood long before many others. So, I don't know, I praise God for our men and women who serve in our armed forces, who serve in our justice system because they're the front lines in the attempts to deal with evil in this world. Will we all deal with it perfectly? No. But they are the front lines of dealing with evil in this world and often give their lives in that fight against evil. So Solomon says, you have to deal with evil in this world. We must punish evil to slow the spread of evil. That's true on a global scale. It's also true on a local scale. Justice must be served. Otherwise, he says, humans become cynical. And if people get away with their crimes, then life seems meaningless to the person trying to do what is right. Living right seems futile when living wrong succeeds. That's the first principle. Second principle this morning. Fear God, because he is the final judge. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews. uh, Hebrews. (laughs) That was a while back. Of Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life... Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. Now, Solomon makes an affirmation of faith here, despite what he can see in the world. Now, he's not glossed over the fact that criminals seem to get away with their crimes in life. He's already said, he sees that, he knows that's true. It happens. And a Christian philosophy of life, and Ecclesiastes is all about a philosophy of life, how our world life view, a Christian philosophy of life never glosses over the reality that people seem to get away with their crimes, sometimes, in this world we know that's true. Yet in spite of what Solomon sees in this world, he maintains this statement of faith. And it's a faith assertion. Even if a sinner does evil, lots and lots of evil, and gets away with it as far as we can tell in this world, Solomon says, I still believe that it will be well with those who fear God. Now that's an That's an assertion. That's a statement of faith, an affirmation. Not only will it be well with us if we fear God, even in the light of all of that, but he adds, fear God openly. Right? Not be afraid to openly honor God even when the world seems a mess, even when those Evil people seem to be successful. To openly fear God. Fear means to reverence, respect, honor Him, and thereby obey Him, obviously. To be open about that. We are not afraid to face evil with our faith in God. Our faith in God is open. It's visible. We don't hide it. We affirm that it will be well with us because we are determined to honor God, even if others seem to get away with it. Now, Why can we say that? Because we believe that there's a final judge, God. That's why the Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 5, when he was hauled before the authorities, and the authorities said, stop preaching the gospel, stop preaching Jesus to the people, he responded by saying these famous words. We must obey God rather than... Now, there's a principle of faith. One of the commitments we make as Christians is to obey and honor God even in the face of evil in this world and to affirm that we must obey God rather than man. Even when evil seems to be winning. First century, they lived under Caesar. Caesar. The Caesars were evil, did much evil. Must obey God rather than men. There is a higher authority than the authority of men. Now, we talked about authority structures that God institutes, so we respect those authority structures. We respect our government. We respect human authority. But God's authority supersedes human authority. And when the two clash, we must obey God rather than men. That is a statement of faith that we affirm in this world. Why? Because we believe that God is a just God and that God will judge evil and sin in this world. And Solomon goes on to say, not only do we feel that it will be well with us if we honor God openly, but we believe, verse 13... Another statement of faith, we believe that the, the evil person who violates God will be judged. And in fact, he says, we believe he will be judged in this world. Even in this life, God will execute justice in his time on those who commit crimes. That's what he says in verse 13. Now that too is a statement of faith. We don't always see it, do we? But we affirm it eventually their crimes will catch up with them because God is judge. Comedian Lily Tomlin once quipped, the trouble with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. Adolf Hitler seemed to win. He was still a rat. Saddam Hussein won for many years. He was still a rat. Mubarak, Gaddafi, seemed to win. Doesn't change the fact they're rats. We rejoice when we see justice served in this life. Because We believe that when people don't fear God, it will not be well with them. We would add, by the way, on the basis of the New Testament, of course, that if God does not judge in this life, he will judge when? In eternity, in the next life. So God is a God of justice, and God will judge evil in this world, if not now, later, if not here, in eternity. And that is an affirmation of faith that we make as Christians. That is our faith in God. And we rest in that faith, and we work against evil, even when evil seems to be winning in this world, because we believe it will be well with us for honoring God anyway. The movie Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, it's about the future of peace in Middle-earth. The peace is dependent upon the destruction of this ring, if you haven't seen it, entrusted to the hand of a hobbit named Frodo Baggins. All of the world's being plunged into this global war, and both Frodo and his friend Sam Gamgee find themselves on a dangerous journey to save Middle-earth. On their way to the treacherous slopes of Mount Doom, far from their home in the shire, their Hungry. they're exhausted, they're, they've had enough, they don't think they can go on. And Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam replies, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo asks, What are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam replies that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote those words in his book because his book was expressing a Christian philosophy of life in a world that had gone very bad. Tolkien had fought in World War I and was living through and involved with World War II, and he completed his famous Lord of the Rings trilogy in 1948 as his commentary on the horrors of facing evil through two world wars in Europe. What are we holding on to? We are holding on to the belief that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Now, do you believe that no matter how bad it gets in this world, God is still at work here? Do you believe that? Then there's good here. For God is at work here. Now, most often God is at work through us, right? Through individuals. Through people who stand for truth and, truth and grace and all of those good principles. But God is at work. God hasn't given up yet on his world, has he? He's still at work. And he calls us to be at work that is how we respond to a world that goes crazy, even when bad things happen all around us. Third principle this morning, there we go, enjoy what God gives despite how the world appears, verse 14, enjoy what God gives despite how the world appears, there is futility which is done on earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is emptiness, futility. So, I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So we come again to his little refrain all through the book of Ecclesiastes. And some people look at that and think that that is just hedonism, that's just, you know, have fun. But they miss the whole point of Ecclesiastes when they look at it that way because, as we said, you have to read Ecclesiastes from the end back. And at the end of the book, his conclusion is fear God and obey Him... And therefore, enjoy what God gives you, because life is God's gift to you. And all the way through the book, he's keeping, he he continues that refrain. Life is God's gift to you, so enjoy what God gives you, for it comes from the hand of God. In the simple things of life. So Solomon raises the frustration that that we often face. We, uh, we can see and sometimes we certainly experience a righteous person who unjustly gets what the wicked person deserves and a wicked person who gets what the righteous person deserves in our jobs. Sometimes the person who is dishonest and unethical gets the job promotion over a person who is righteous and ethical and honest and does what is Right. That happens, does it not? We see that. Sometimes the evil person succeeds in blaming the righteous person for the problems, so that the righteous person gets fired. It happens. We can look around, we can see these injustices, and it's frustrating. We begin to worry about all the wrongs of this world that we're experiencing. And the result is that we become very negative and frustrated people if we focus on all those wrongs. He's already said we need to stand against evil, but oftentimes we can't solve the problems and we see these things happen. And if we just begin to worry about them and become frustrated because of all the bad stuff that is happening, then we are in trouble. Solomon says, look, we all know that these things happen in this world. Don't let it get to you. Life is God's gift. Enjoy it. Find pleasure in the simple things of life, everyday life, because that's, eat, drink. These are the normal activities of life, nothing special about them. But they're still God's gift to us. Take joy in what God gives to you. Be content. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Stop worrying that life is unfair. And enjoy what you have from the hand of God. For life is fleeting, he will say in other parts of Ecclesiastes. It goes by quickly. That's a Christian philosophy of life. Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Boy, isn't that the truth? Each day has enough trouble of its own. So take each day as a gift from the hand of God. Worry is a thief. Worry robs us of life. We're so busy worrying about the problems that we miss out on the joys. For four hours, he held the cylinder, waiting for the rescue to come or immediate death. After digging digging up what appeared to be an unexploded World War I bomb, David Page held on to it, afraid that letting go would detonate the device. While holding the bomb, the terrified 40-year-old from Norfolk, England, called an emergency operator on his mobile phone. He even used the call to issue his last words to his family. The woman police officer kept saying it would be okay, said Page, but I kept saying to her, you're not the one holding the bomb. First responders rushed to the workyard in Eastern England. Army bomb disposal experts finally arrived and the bomb was identified and the whole drama came to an abrupt end when they discovered it was part of an hydraulic suspension system for a popular European car. <laughs> Even so, it took some time For the man to be convinced that he could let go of the bomb. Are you sure? There are times we find ourselves so frozen with fear in the face of the problems we face and the hard things that happen that we cannot trust God. We know that God is in control... We know that God has the power to handle this situation, that God has the power to handle whatever we're facing in this world, but instead of trusting Him, we hang on to the bomb. That's what worry is. What are you hanging on to right now that you won't let go of, even though God asks you to give it over to Him? and enjoy what he gives to you instead. What bomb has you so full of fear and hurt and anger and pain that you can't give it over to God? You won't trust God with it. God says give it over to him. I like what Corey Tenboom says. She was, of course, imprisoned in a Nazi prison camp as a child. She says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That's good. Solomon challenges us to give the worries to God, take joy in what he gives to us because life is God's gift. Enjoy it. James tells us, count it all joy, right? When you fall into the troubles and struggles of this life. A pastor in Florida used to have count it all joy parties every now and then. What what he would do when he faced difficult situations, he'd call some friends over to his house. He'd say, I want you to come over to my house for a party. They'd say, oh, is it a birthday? Is there something special? No. No. Nothing special. What's the situation? Well, he said, I'm going through a very difficult time. I'm facing a crisis in my life, and I want you to all come over and have a party. It's a count-it-all joy party because I know that God's going to teach me something through this. I know that God's going to solve the crisis somehow. And so I want you to all come and celebrate at my count-it-all joy party. Any of you ever had any count-it-all joy parties? I can't say that I've ever called a count-it-all joy party. Usually when I'm going through a rough time, I don't want to have a party. I want to have somebody fix the problem. But if God's in control, and we really believe that God is in control, then we can count it all joy when we face those struggles of life. We can... We can do this, not because we're pretending. It's not a game. We're not faking it. But because, fourth principle this morning, we remember that God's ways are higher than our ways. And that is so important to hang on to in the face of evil and bad things in this world. Look at verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, that's how hard I worked, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun, that is the work of God. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say I know, he cannot discover. You can work day and night, You can study, 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 study and try to understand God and his works in this world and there are wise people who say, I know God, I know what he's got, I know how it's going to all work out, right? And Solomon says, sorry, you can't know. There's no way to know God and understand and comprehend him to that extent. We don't have all the answers. God does. But that's comforting when you think about it. Because when you don't know the answer to the why, you can trust in a God who does. Solomon says that we can study and study and study, but we'll never fully understand God. We can search for answers to our toughest questions. We will never fully comprehend God, and why he does what he does. And he's talking about life on this earth. Now, when we get to eternity, we'll understand it a little better than we do now. But I submit to you, we will never fully understand God even in eternity future. We still will have questions. Why? Because he's God and we're not. That's the bottom line. We will never understand him or his ways in every situation. When we worry, we think to ourselves, boy, I can't figure this out. That's why we're worrying, because we can't figure it out. And if I can't figure out, it's way too hard for God to figure out. That's what worry is. Well, it sounds silly, doesn't it? Because it is silly. And yet, it's the way we feel so often. No wonder God says that our worries are not worth it. Here's what God tells us in the Bible. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9. Solomon, you search and search and search, but you'll never understand me. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Romans eleven thirty-three. 33. When you can't figure it out, remember, God can when life is really a struggle and you cry out in your soul, why, God, why? Remember that you can't figure God out, but you can trust him to see you through whatever you face in that moment. As I sat last night with Sharon and her family in that hospital room, and Sharon cried out to God, 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 you are good. You are faithful. I know it. And I'm hanging on to it. I don't understand it. That is an affirmation of faith. That is bald naked faith. When life has fallen apart. I cannot. I don't understand, but I trust you. That's convicting to me. And I trust you as well. He is the Lord of tomorrow as well as today. And you can trust him, even when you can't understand it. Richard Stearns, the president of World Vision, reflected on his visit to a church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, nearly a year after that devastating earthquake there. The, The church's building consisted of a tent made from white tarps and duct tape pitched in the middle of a sprawling camp for thousands of people still homeless from the earthquake even a year later. And this is how he described the church and the the worship service that Sunday, quite different from ours in many ways. In the front row sat six amputees, ranging in age, he said, from six to 60. They were clapping and smiling as they sang song after song and lifted their prayers to God in rejoicing. The worship, he said, far from being depressing, was full of hope. And with thanksgiving to the Lord, no one was singing louder or praying more fervently than Demasi Lufini, a 32-year-old unemployed single mother of two. During the earthquake, a collapsed building, he said, crushed her right leg and her uh, her right arm and her left leg. And after four days, both limbs had to be amputated. She was leading the choir, leading prayers standing on her prosthesis and lifting her one hand high to praise God. Following the service, he said, I met with Damasi's two daughters, ages 8 and 10. The three of them now lived in a tent 5 feet tall, perhaps 8 feet wide. Despite losing her job, her home, and her two limbs, she is deeply grateful because God spared her life. He brought me back like Lazarus, giving me the gift of life, says Damasi. Who believes she survived the quake for two reasons to raise her girls and to serve her Lord? He gave me the gift of life. Could you say that in the midst of that kind of a situation? Honestly, that convicts me. I get upset when the Wi Fi goes down. You know? or traffic holds me up. God gave me the gift of life. Maybe life seems overwhelming today. Maybe people have hurt you. Maybe they've done you wrong. Maybe they've offended you. Maybe they've stolen. Maybe they've, I don't know, you fill in the blanks. but you're under the burdens of all the stuff of life. And I want to encourage you this morning to bring those burdens to the cross. Bring all that hurt, all of those wrongs that have been done to you, all of the fear, all of the worry, all of the struggle that you face, bring it to the cross and give them to Jesus. Let him have him and let him rescue you and find your joy in knowing that he is in control and you can trust him with your life. And I want to tell you that is the only way to live upright in a world that is upside down. Father, we need you. We desperately need you. And there are times we finally recognize that. Most often in life we live as if we don't, truthfully Lord, and you know that. But we do need you to give us strength day by day to live for you and I pray that everyone in this room would take a moment and give those burdens and those struggles and those hurts and those pains, give them over to you and to trust you with the life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.